Please uh, keep your Bibles open at that page because we'll be using the passage tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for the inspiration of your Holy Spirit which gave him the words to say to Timothy and gave him the words to write this letter. And we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us tonight from it. Encourage us, challenge us, and bring us to your presence, we pray. Amen. Well, as you probably uh, heard um, from Will, this is the last in our series of sermons on 2 Timothy. And uh, it's also... Paul's last written letter that we find in the Bible. And this is the last chapter of the letter. And so we could say, we could give it a subheading, the last word. And last words are very important, aren't they? Last words are very important. If you've lost a loved one and you've been at there when they've Uh, left us and died, you'll know that last words are very important. And as I was thinking about this, as I was wondering and praying about it, I wondered if God uh, had spoken to us this week uh, and said to us that we were going to leave Norwich in the near future, or in fact that we're going to depart this earth soon, what would our last words be to this church and to those in leadership positions. What would your last words be to Will, or to those here who are in leadership positions? Well, we know that this is, in fact, last words, because Paul said in verses 6 and 7 that he expects to leave this earth soon. And through this letter we have seen the call to Timothy by Paul to persevere in the gospel despite suffering, to continue the fight of faith. And if you remember, Paul was in prison a second time in Rome. And this is his last letter to his great friend, his last letter as a spiritual father. What was the future going to look like for Timothy? Well, last week, Jonathan brought us how the present and the future looked like for Timothy. If you go back in your Bibles on the previous page to chapter 3, you'll see what Jonathan said to us last week about what the reality for Timothy was. I just have a, a brief scan through it. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, etc. And he said in verse 5 that have, they had no form of godliness and Timothy was to have nothing to do with these people. So it was present for Timothy. It was the situation he was in. And I wondered, is, do we recognise this as our situation that our new leader is going to face as he comes or as they come to Norwich later on in the year? 
And it's into this situation that Paul makes this final statement to Timothy. And therefore it's really important. But what's the reality behind what he says? What's the background to his last words? Well, if you look in verse 1, you'll see that we can pick out three aspects of this reality into which Paul gives his instructions to Timothy. Firstly, he says that, you look at verse 1, in the presence of God. God is present. Secondly, we see that uh, Jesus is king who will judge all. And then thirdly, Jesus will return as king. So let's have a little look at that background information then that we are given uh, by Paul to start with. Paul states that God is present and God is in charge of the world. And I wondered, do we live with that reality within a society who has the characteristics, or which has the characteristics of chapter 3, verses 1 to 5? A society that doesn't acknowledge God at all. And how will this alter how we live? The fact that God is in control means that Jesus will return and will judge both those who are alive at the time of his coming and those that have died before he returns. And so Paul is stating that God is in control. Therefore, Timothy shouldn't worry about being judged by the world or by other believers but that there will be judgment on all including those that follow Jesus and those that don't. And the judgment will be carried out by Jesus. Now this should be a liberating experience for Timothy. He doesn't have to be concerned by the approval of mankind, but rather that all his actions and life comes under the gaze of Christ and that God is in control. And so a question for us tonight. Is this our reality if we're followers of Jesus today. Because having this reality will save us from the worry of criticism of others, also from self-importance and having a self-centred spirit that demands thanks and praise for every action we take. And we are saved from being hurt by ingratitude from others. Why? Because God is in control. And we are going to be judged by Jesus, who loved us enough to die for us on the cross that we'll come to celebrate later in the service. That's really important, I think, because we do live, don't we, in a society that doesn't acknowledge the reality of God and Jesus at all. But secondly, we see of this reality, we see that Jesus, Paul states, is king who will judge and rule over all. So Timothy's life and ours, if we seek to follow Jesus, must be such that it will stand the scrutiny and judgment of Jesus. Our lives lived in such a way that we will welcome the appearance of Jesus as king. Our service demonstrates the reality of our citizenship of the kingdom of God. Now if this is our reality as Paul charges Timothy to have, then this will affect our attitudes towards the whole of our lives, towards the way we spend our time in leisure and entertainment, our income and our employment and our dreams and visions. 
But thirdly, we see here, as a background to the whole issue, is in verse 1 that Paul states that Jesus will return as a king who conquers. The word is by his appearances. The word used here in Greek is epiphania. I'm not sure I pronounced that right. But what it means is, it means that some god, especially the Roman emperor, who they thought was a god, who went on visits to towns within his empire. When this happened, when the emperor went around the towns, everything had to be cleaned and spick and span. So Timothy was to live in the expectation of Jesus' return. Well, do we live like that? Is this our expectation? Because this will change our priorities in the way we spend our time and the importance we put on spreading the gospel message. If Timothy was to live like this, how much more should our new incumbent, our new rector, do so as well? We should have this expectation. And this will strongly influence the priorities that we as a church have. Now I would suggest to you that tonight this isn't popular teaching amongst Christian communities. But this is the reality that Paul expects for Timothy. And so he writes in verse 1, solemnly, I charge you. But what is he charging? Well he's charging that this young leader, what he's got to do in his last days. So turn to verses 2 to 5. 2 to 5. And this is where we're going to concentrate. Well, we're going to concentrate actually on verses 2 to 8. So let's look at the charge that uh, he is given. And the first charge is this. Timothy must preach the word. And Timothy must be urgent Or to put it another way, he must be prepared to take every opportunity to speak the word. Now this means he must do so out of season or in season. That means he must speak the good news of the gospel, which is the core message of the whole of scripture, and it must be applied both to unbelievers and to believers. And it's a call to continue to believe in and live out the implications of this message. And for his Timothy is to do this in season and out of season. In other words, when it is convenient and when it isn't. And this is Paul's prime command to this young leader, Timothy. This is to be the aim of his work. And so I wondered, as we consider and as we pray for our new rector to lead us here, isn't this what we should be looking for? And I have to say to you, as one of those people that have been uh, writing the profile, this has been one of our aims. We want someone whose prime aim in life is to preach the word, both to believers and to unbelievers, the whole gospel of God, which means the whole of scripture that shows God's plan of salvation for the world. But likewise, I believe, it's not just for our leader, because we ourselves, if we're followers of Jesus, are we not also called by God to proclaim the whole gospel to those that we meet? 
The gospel is to bring hope to the lost. It's to make whole those that are suffering, both physically and spiritually. And that may be through actions of, practical actions of helping the poor, providing food for them, praying for healing and deliverance from spiritual oppression, as well as preaching the word. Because we know that is what Jesus wants us to do. And so Timothy must be urgent, and we must be urgent. But secondly, look at verse 2 again. He must, what must he do? He must correct or reprove, is another way of saying, rebuke and encourage or exhort. Now, you might say, well, this is pretty hard teaching. But Paul doesn't just mention this, this here. Now, to correct or convict, Paul has stated this before. We find it in 1 Timothy 5, verse 20, where Paul says, those that sin are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. Or in Titus 1, verse 13, Paul writes, this testimony is true. Rebuke them sharply so they will be sound in faith. Now we know, don't we, that Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus. And there was much evidence of false teachers and false doctrines within that young church at Ephesus. And Paul states that this young leader, as he preaches and speaks, must protect the young believers by correcting false teaching and false listening, living. And this is surely still needed today in our churches. It's easy, isn't it, to follow fads and fashions within doctrines. Well, we need to be humble enough to accept correction from our leaders. But this also applies to the way we live in our lives that are often moulded by the morals of the day and the customs. Ask ourselves, on what basis do we live? Is it the morals portrayed by the media why is it that we slip into that mould of our cultural norms so easily? And are our leaders teaching us what the moral requirements God expects of his followers? Well, as Donald Guthrie has stated, Christian doctrine in our modern age is generally so lax that moral status in many communities is greatly weakened. Of course, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't welcome those into our church who live lives of brokenness and hedonism. The preacher should use words that bring conviction to the person, conviction that their sin leads to separation from God. But what it means is that once we come to Christ and we submit to his lordship, when we find that Jesus is our Lord and Saviour, then we are to submit to his moral standards and not those of our society. Walter Bagot once said, somehow or other the sinner must be made to feel disgusted with his sin. Timothy was to convict and correct those he leads. But secondly, Timothy was not also to convict and correct, he was to rebuke the people so that the people changed their lives. William Barclay put it this way, In the great days of the church, there was utter fearlessness in its voice. And because of that, things happened. 
And he quotes an example that was drawn from the 19th century, which I know is a long time ago. But he quotes this example of what happened in, the, in India in the Viceroy, which was the government of the British government in India, in Calcutta. And he says this. He says that at that time in the 19th century, there was a certain young nobleman in the Viceroy's uh, office in Calcutta. And this young nobleman lived a profligate life of sin. And so one day, Bishop Wilson put on his robes, drove to the government house and said to the Viceroy, Your Excellency, if Lord such and such does not leave Calcutta before next Sunday, I shall denounce him from the pulpit. Well, before that Sunday came, that young man had left. He had gone. Now, of course, most of our spiritual leaders are not in this situation. But they still need to be sure that this is one of the tasks of their position, as Paul instructs Timothy. And in our own personal lives, within the community of believers that we are in, that's a part of the role for us to play. Again, William Barclay puts it like this. In our personal relationships, a word of warning and rebuke would often save a brother from sin and shipwreck. Now, of course, that word must also be, always be spoken as a brother setting a brother right. It must be spoken with a consciousness of our own common guilt. It's not our place to set ourselves up as a moral judge of anyone. Nonetheless, it is our duty to speak a warning word that needs to be spoken. In fact, it's because Timothy is to love his neighbour as he loves himself that he is to do this. And if we love our fellow believers, we are to take care of them. And I know this is a difficult word for all of us this evening because it goes right against the norms of our liberal society that we live in. Timothy, though, Paul says, was to rebuke the people. So Timothy then was to uh, rebuke the people, he was to take charge of them, but having corrected and rebuked them, he was lastly, we see here in this verse, to exhort them, or to put it in more modern language, to encourage them. Timothy was to bring encouragement to those within this young church. Not only to those who didn't know Jesus, but those that knew him as well. Yes, the ones that didn't know Jesus, they are sinners needing to repent, but the encouragement is that Jesus loved them enough to die for them on a cross. We know, don't we, how encouragement helps each one of us when we're trying to achieve something, whether that be in music, whether that be in sport, life, uh, academic studies or whatever. And the same is true with our spiritual walk with Jesus. We need to encourage each other. So how can we do it? Well, surely by prayer, by sharing in what Jesus is doing in our lives, by sharing the Bible with each other, by sharing miracles, by spending time with each other, whether that be in small groups or whether that be in prayer partnerships, where we can be accountable one to each other. Having a kind word, of course, 
is a great way that we can encourage one another. So can I suggest that whoever is appointed as rector next year, they will need our encouragement, even when they don't live up to our expectations. So let us be an encouraging church that values each member. But of course, these are difficult instructions, aren't they, by Paul to Timothy. It's very demanding. So how was he to achieve this? Well, let's go back to verse 2. Look what it says. He is by careful teaching with great patience. Now we know that patience is one of the gifts of the Spirit, as Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We read, love is patient. Love is kind. And the kind of patience required here is unwearied patience. The word is macrothumia. Now again, I probably haven't pronounced that right. But that, that word, that Greek word, describes the spirit which never grows irritated even in trying circumstances. The word describes never despairs and never regards any man as beyond salvation. As Barclay again states, the Christian patiently believes in mankind because he unconquerably believes in the changing power of Christ. In other words, Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can convict us of sin and can give us the power to live lives that glorify Jesus. And all of this is to be achieved through careful instructions or preaching by the leader. However, it is important, isn't it, that we remember that the Christian reproof without grace of long sufferance has often led to harsh, censorious attitudes which can be very harmful to the cause of the gospel and very destructive to people. So we might ask ourselves, why then is it necessary for Paul to write this to Timothy? Well, Paul is looking forward to Timothy's ministry within the local church. And so in verses 3 to 5, we have warnings concerning the future. Look at verses 3 to 5 again. Look what he says. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. And so it points us to a time, Paul is pointing Timothy to a time when there will be open opposition to the gospel. A time even less favourable to that which Paul lives in. A time when men won't put up with sound doctrine. And of course... We have seen this, haven't we, throughout Christian history. When man had gathered around the many teachers who haven't taught sound doctrine, but who seek the satisfaction of their own desires. And so Paul writes, the people have itching ears. It's great, isn't it? Itching ears. What's he mean by that? 
Well, it means by that that their ears are tickled. It's as if, though, they merely scratch the eardrums without penetrating further. And as I thought about this, it made me think of, well, it's when I listen to preachers. I agree with what they say, but don't allow it to actually change the way I behave or what I actually believe. I don't allow it to help in my worship of our holy God. And so this instruction then is relevant to Timothy because there were many teachers who would teach what people wanted to hear and they did this for pay. They were called sophists. Isocrat said of them, they try to attract pupils by low fees and big promises. They were prepared to teach the whole of virtue for 15 to 20 pounds. That uh, very famous uh, philosopher Plato said of them, hunters after young men of wealth and position with sham education as their bait and a fee for their object making money by a scientific use of quibbles in private conversations while quite aware with what they were teaching is wrong. Ring any bells? Men in the days of Timothy were beset by false teachers hawking around sham knowledge. Their deliberate policy was to find arguments whereby a man could justify himself for what he wanted to do. Now I would suggest to you, any teacher to this day whose teaching tends to make men think less of sin is a menace to the gospel, to Christianity and to mankind. Preachers within the prosperity gospel tend to be a bit like this. And we need to take care. But we need to ask ourselves, do we acknowledge the power of sin and the centrality of God's saving plan through the death of Jesus on the cross? So how then should Timothy act as a Christian minister? How should he act and how should we look for what should we look for in a Christian minister? Well, look at verse 5. Despite all the opposition and the problems, Paul states that Timothy should be sober-minded, keep a clear head, be self-contained. He is not to be the victim of crazes. Stability is his badge in an unbalanced and often insane world. The Christian minister must seek to cultivate an unruffled alertness in every aspect of the word, which, of course, is very demanding. Also, of course, they are to expect and, uh, and uh, they are to expect hardship. They are to expect hardship. They are to expect hardship and trouble, and they are to endure hardship and accept whatever suffering comes upon them, because following Christ will cost something. And they are to pay the price without grumbling and regret. And this is a repeat of what he has already stated in Timothy 2 Timothy 2 verse 3. But Timothy is to continue preaching the gospel and he is to complete 
his calling to lead the church. It's quite a list, isn't it? It's not going to be easy for Timothy, or can I suggest for our leaders to do. However, Timothy is to be encouraged by Paul. He is actually encouraged uh, by Paul as he finishes with a promise. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. Look what he says. In verse 8 he says this, Now there is a store for me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. So Timothy then is to be encouraged. In Paul has spoken of the race he has run, he has spoken of the fight he has fought, and now because of Paul's persistence, the rewards, the promise of God, the crown of righteousness. And this refers to uh, Olympic Games, actually. This is the, uh, the metaphor that's being used here. Okay, you know we've just had an Olympics, but in the Greek times, they gave the winner a sort of a laurel, and that is what uh, the crown of righteousness is, like a laurel of righteousness. And that's going to be given to all those that follow Jesus and serve him on Judgment Day. And this crown isn't just for Paul, but it's for you all who have longed for the return of Christ. They have lived their lives loving Jesus, appearance in the past, and continue to do so until they receive their reward, the crown of righteousness. There's been some difficult teaching tonight, all that bit about judgment and uh, rebukes and that sort of stuff. It's difficult, isn't it? But I believe this should be an encouragement to us. It should be an encouragement to us to be reminded that the early Christians loved Jesus. And Paul was encouraging them to continue to do so. And there would be a time when they would receive acknowledgement of this from Jesus himself on the day of judgment. And so as we continue to pray for the process of the selection of God's leader for this church, we can use Paul's instructions to Timothy as a guideline for our prayers. Timothy was to give his whole life to preaching the word. He was to correct, rebuke and encourage those within his congregation. And we would be served well by such a leader. So let us then uh, finish off by praying for our leaders. Okay, let's finish off by praying for those in such responsible situation. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words given by Paul to Timothy. We thank you for this whole series and how we have read through it that Paul is to continue preaching the word, he is to continue encouraging the followers of Jesus, but he's also to correct and rebuke them too. And this is a tremendous responsibility for a young leader to do. And so we pray, Father, as we seek to appoint the man and woman who you have called to this position, we pray, Father, that uh, 
they would be the person that you want and they would have these characteristics of preaching the word within season and without season. And we pray it is in your name. Amen.